90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, pretty good, John. Just trying to get back into the swing of things for the last couple of weeks of school. How about yourself? Oh, pretty well. We're full on in the process of moving now, and we have one week of lecture left, and then the students in class have to present their projects. Yay. I, man, the last week of class is the best being a professor versus being a student, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> It's the, it's the greatest. Yeah, so we only have, we've got a, a PID controller activity left and then a lecture on uh, hydraulics in rock mechanics. That sounds riveting. <laughs> yes, I'm sure that they will agree. Uh, exactly. <laughs> Speaking of electronic words that I don't understand, like PID, um, we've got some great electronics talk happening today, right? We do. We're really happy that we're joined by Elicia White from the Embedded.fm podcast. Hi, Elicia. How are you? Hi, John and Shannon. Thanks for having me on. No problem. So I don't know if many of our listeners will be familiar with your show because they don't necessarily overlap. We mostly do geoscience and you do embedded electronics. But you have this fun thing at the beginning of your show called Lightning Round, where you ask your guests these questions and want ideally one or two word answers. And sometimes that doesn't happen, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got a list here of some lightning round questions for you. This is something we've never done, but thought it would be fun. So Shannon, do you want to start off? Uh, sure. So uh, we blatantly stole these from you guys, but we're definitely <laughs> starting out with uh, Alicia, which dinosaur is the best? The Triceratops, specifically Triceratops horridus. Oh, look at you. <laughs> <laughs> and why is that? Well, so the podcast started a while ago, and it was originally called Making Embedded Systems, because that's what my book was called. And in the book, I wrote a data sheet, but I didn't want it to be about an electronic component, because... They're complicated enough. Instead, I wrote a data sheet about how a triceratops works. And it had these four feet, and you had to do things, and then it would charge. And it had all these horrific puns inside. And so now it is by far my favorite dinosaur, because I had to read all about it to make sure the puns were right. <laughs> I appreciate that so much on a truly deep nerd level. <laughs> right. Oh, okay. So if you could be a geological formation or feature, what would it be? This sounds like a Silicon Valley interview question. <laughs> well, I, I'm not quite sure how to define geological formation. Um, is the sand count? Yes. Uh, yeah, sand for, for, yeah. you, for you, it will count. Yes. <laughs> so it would be sand because it is infinitely varied and incredibly flexible and just one of those materials that doesn't quite make sense to me. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully we can make it make sense to you and you can make <laughs> sense of dev board to me. <laughs> um, now this one I ask John all the time. Uh, what language should people learn first when being introduced to programming? It depends entirely on what they want to do. If you're a data scientist, go ahead and learn R or Python. If you are a four-year-old, then maybe start with something a little simpler. 
I don't know, maybe the tickle form of a uh, scratch, I think little control robots. Uh, if you're in college, I like C. Java is very popular. Python is probably the prettiest language right now. But don't just learn programming because you want to have that on a checkbox. That doesn't do anybody any good. All right, yeah, so I'm you've got to have follow- some kind of problem that you want to... yeah. That you want to tackle with it, yeah. Hmm. Okay, so kind of in the same vein, if somebody wants to get started with embedded electronics that we'll probably end up defining here in a little bit, what Please. dev board do you think they should get? Well, that's actually a very similar answer. It depends on what you want to do. If you just want to try it out, you want to have Christmas lights that you control for Christmas, or you want to have this fantastic light for your pumpkin that sometimes looks like a flickering candle, but then occasionally goes into this strange blue color, then you should get an Arduino because they're easy and there are so many tutorials out there. And if you fail using an Arduino, I promise somebody will tell you how to fix it. But if you are going to build something in your laboratory that is going to, I don't know, maybe a many thousand dollar magnetometer, you don't necessarily want to do an Arduino. You need something a little more complicated, a little beefier to handle that. And so that you have a good translation layer between you and your, uh, between your computer and your device. So it really depends. I, I do like Arduino. If that seems too babyish for you, then um, there's a whole bunch of boards that are under the label embed, and they're all kinds of processors. They do everything from Bluetooth to Wi-Fi to just being little smart devices, and the compiler's super easy to use. So those would be my two paths. Hmm. All right. Okay. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so following up on that, what's your favorite dev board? That's tough, but um, <laughs> Spark. I'm, I'm sure that you, your desk is littered with them, probably, right? That's it is today, actually. Up. It really is today. <laughs> I was looking for starting a new project, and I was trying to decide what, what to get started with. <laughs> I feel like this is like asking what's your favorite child, <laughs> probably, for you guys. Well, there are some pretty darn <laughs> ugly children out there. I mean, ugly <laughs> dev boards. Uh, and I think my favorite for like people who are a little beyond Arduino, but not quite making their own stuff yet. SparkFun is a company that does a lot of boards and they do really good tutorials to go with them. And they make a board called The Thing. And underneath it's this little tiny Wi-Fi processor, very powerful, but you can hook it up to the internet and it will collect data for you. And the way they've got this dev board set up you plug it in and 10 minutes later, you are taking data and it goes to out to the web into the SparkFun database. You can't always, I mean, if you're taking a bunch of data, you can't do that. But if you just want to use it to monitor whether or not something's happened in your lab, that's so the way to go. And it was amazing because it really did go from open the box to data's on the web in 10 minutes. Yeah, those Have are incredible. Okay. And they're cheap. That was my question. They're based on the the ESP eighty two sixty six, and we used one. Made its own. It made an access point and was sending temperature, pressure, and humidity data back from a drone that was flying profiles through the atmosphere. And like you said, it just took a few minutes to put it together. It was amazing. 
And because they have their database set up there and they have instructions on how to set it up on your computer, um, you can access it wherever you are. I, I worked on a project that used them for feeding mice and they went from having to check whether the mouse food was full like every day or every three days to being pretty confident that once a month they could go do it because they could check how much has it been eaten. I, I guess that was... Did that use the actual data.sparkfun.com service to do that, or did they stand up their own FANT server to do that? Uh, last, when I stopped, when I handed over the project, they were still using the FANT server on SparkFun. SparkFun doesn't okay. mind. I mean, they have some limits, but overall, for that sort of thing, they don't mind. Yeah. So what kind of, well, what's your favorite sensor? What are some of the sensors that you've been playing around with that you really like? The sensors that I like best are inertial measurement units. Um, nine degrees of freedom, magnetometer, accelerometer, gyro. If I have to choose just one of those, it would be the accelerometer. You can tell so much about what your device is doing just by knowing which way it is down. We're going to see a lot more interfaces in the future that aren't type at it or even touchpad it, but turn it upside down, and now it has a totally different behavior. Hmm. Okay, yeah, so you can tell like, how you're holding the device, and with the, the other components of the IMU, you can do all kinds of fancy gameplay and all kinds of stuff, right? Yes, but with just the accelerometer, if you had a button before and you were worried about water incursion, you put an accelerometer in there and you tap it. And now you can be fully encapsulated. You can't. You don't have to have a button that's waterproof. You just tap it in the right place and you're done. And all of the times I've come back to electronics that have had to be outside that are full of water now, sealed enclosures that can really be sealed are pretty amazing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, okay. Mac, PC, or Unix? I, I'm PC. Uh, my co-host yeah. is Mac, very heavily <laughs> Mac, but I, I'm PC. <laughs> Heavily Mac. That sounds like a <laughs> he's got an addiction. Problem. <laughs> yeah. But it kind That's of how, is that way when you get in the Mac ecosystem. Very I much. was just gonna say, John finally got himself a Microsoft Surface, so he's trying to, you know, go rehab himself out of <laughs> the Mac ecosystem. <laughs> okay, so then we've got one uh, rock paper scissors. I believe there's only one correct answer on this show, and that would be rock. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Excellent. Excellent. Uh-huh. Um, so we listen to you guys while we're working, but what do you guys listen to when you're working? I listen to music. I, I either listen to music that I've had for a long time uh, because if I listen to m new music, it distracts me, uh, or I listen yeah. to music without words. Um. Yeah, I have to do that too. Although I do have my home office now is is situated next to a family of birds, and so there's a good part of my day where I listen to bird song and just adore it. Oh, that's beautiful! I have these obnoxious pigeons that come to my window. <laughs> that's not nearly as fun. <laughs> okay, and we've got one more: Gilfoyle or Richard. I don't know what that is, so I'm going to say Richard. I didn't uh, get it either. I had to look it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, so this is from the, uh, I think it's HBO series, Silicon Valley. Oh, yeah. I don't, I watched like part of one, but that's what my life is like. I don't really need a show. <laughs> it was far too correct. Oh, excellent. That's uh, everybody that I've talked to that's out there has said it's it was very, you know, it's supposed to be tongue in cheek, but it was almost like a documentary. There are <laughs> some really great uh, scenes in there about, you know, tabs versus spaces and different editors. There's there's a Vim Emacs fight. And th- there oh, are a few God. things that are definitely worth, <laughs> worth checking out. There's the cringeworthy part that, I, I'm embarrassed that that's what people know us for. I don't want the VI versus Emacs to be what Silicon Valley's known for. It's just too painful. <laughs> uh, you guys are going to have to work on your image a little bit because not knowing what half of these words that you say in your podcast are, <laughs> that's definitely what, what I know about it. So, <laughs> Oh, that's good. Well, so I guess to, to kind of move out of that into the, the little bit more serious questions, uh, would you tell us a little bit about your background? So kind of how you got to where you are now? Well, let's see. I was born... No, um, let's see. <laughs> I went to college at Harvey Mudd College in Claremont, California. And a very few number of people out there are going, Harvard Med? And another very few people out there are going, oh, that explains so much. Those are the two normal reactions. Everybody else just, their eyes glaze over. That's fine. It's a small school, focuses on engineering and science. I didn't major in anything normal. I did a half of the, I did all of the applied computer science classes and all of the theoretical engineering classes. So Fourier is fun and I can certainly type very fast. That set me up to go into signal processing, which is a sort of, subfield of computer science that has a lot to do with Fourier and looking at analyzing signals. It was so wonderful when I discovered that because it wasn't my first job out of college. It also meant that I was well prepared for doing motor control and general control system theory things and then applying them with actual motors and voice coils and stuff. It was really cool. So I went to HP, and then I went to HP Labs, and then HP Labs got split off into Agilent, and I said, oh, to heck with this. All my friends are go- going to startups. So I went to a startup, <laughs> and we made the first inertial measurement units made out of MEM sensors. These things which used to cost thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and we started making them for a thousand bucks. And it was magical. I just loved how you could change an industry that fast. And now they're in kids' toys. Wow. It's just... <laughs> That's insane. So, so I've worked on medical devices. I've worked on inertial sensors, which meant race cars and airplanes. I've done children's toys for leapfrog, teaching kids to learn, or teaching kids to read, which is incredibly rewarding. And I've done a gunshot location system where... We place sensors around a city and automatically call the police when a gunshot is happens, oh, wow. which was amazing and sciency and just exactly like Silicon Valley, the show. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it would be some almost exact form of the earthquake location problem that we end up dealing with 
on a pretty regular basis, right? You just have a positive Z coordinate instead of negative. <laughs> yes. Just that. <laughs> Everything else. Well, well you know, there, there's there's physics and yeah, no. No, it blah, sounds like blah, a really blah. interesting uh, and pretty hard problem because there's so many noise sources in a city. Well, the quieter noise sources, like with uh, finding earthquakes, you don't really care about a truck going by or a basketball happening nearby because earthquakes and gunshots are loud. You, you get them across many sensors, and that's one way you can tell that they're real. But okay, right. the other problem are other repetitive noise sources. Jackhammers are a problem. Helicopters, which can be heard across multiple sensors. And so that, yeah, it was an interesting set of problems. And it was a really strange application for somebody relatively sheltered in the Silicon Valley ivory tower. Uh, I mean, we'd go to gun ranges and you'd have all of these Silicon Valley nerds, which we were absolutely 100%. And we'd, we'd find somebody to shoot guns for us. And we were so chicken until we hired this great guy who was like, no, shooting guns is fun. I'll teach you how. And there was Phil teaching everybody how to handle weapons properly until we looked like naturals. It was, it was so weird. It was just a weird cross-section of engineering and humanity. <laughs> See, that's what I imagine, like, for engineers. That's why it's so cool. Like, now that I've had to talk to a lot of them, like, actually interact with them, not just make fun of them, is that... <laughs> You get to see so many cool problems. It, it seems like it's not ever the same, and that's very appealing to my ADHD mind. Yes, and I love the applications I work on because I've gotten to work on so many. And right. now I'm a consultant, which means I, I work on even more different things where Chris usually works on uh, Fitbit and some medical clients he has. I tend to work with little startups that are doing brand new things. And it's, yeah, I just love the variety and the applications, the idea that I know there's one kid out there who learned to read because I helped him. And it wasn't really me. It was, I watched him play with my device and I watched him change. It was amazing. That's awesome. I love the the phrase that Chris coined um, a couple shows back, the eclectical engineer. Oh, that, was yes. <laughs> that was wonderful. I've been using it ever since. <laughs> so how long have you been consulting? I started consulting a long time ago, and then I, I emailed ShotSpotter, the gunshot location system, and said, would you consider consulting? And at the same time, they were emailing me and said, would you consider full-time? They crossed in email <laughs> land, which isn't a very big land. And uh, and then I ended up leaving consulting for a while to go work for them. Uh, now I think it's been four or five years since I started consulting again. Okay. And so I mean, is getting to do a lot of these different projects, what kind of inspired you to do that and getting to see lots of different things? Or what what made you decide to go out? On a, as an independent? Oh, that's a tough question. <laughs> uh, let's see. I think I've had enough Silicon Valley jokes here. Um, <laughs> I tend to be pretty independent and I want to work on what I want to work on. And I don't mind helping companies if I can view it that way. But I'm not very good at drinking the company Kool-Aid. <laughs> <laughs> 
They want me to work all hours. They want me to give a crap about their stupid pivoting. And I don't. I care very much about the customers and I care about the technology. But I honestly don't care if it's your birthday today. I mean, can't I just go back to work? I really just want to work. So this is Oh, so close to home. I'm sorry. That sounds like an academic statement of, I want to work out, I want to work out. uh, My husband summed it up, uh, Alicia, as, I can't handle working for the man. (laughs) But it sounds like we both can't handle that. (laughs) And like I said, I did consulting for a while, and then I went went to ShotSpotter. And I stayed at ShotSpotter for four or five years, and it was great. I didn't mind working so much because I, I loved what we were doing. I mean, it was amazing. And I, the people I worked with were awesome. But then it got big and I got bored. So, yeah, it, I would go back if it was perfect. But I am pretty accustomed to uh, logging out at 4 o'clock and going to the beach these days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds pretty good. That does, from, <laughs> from two people that are fully landlocked. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hey, we've got a lot of lakes in Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and so you've been doing this consulting and you've also got a podcast that we've already referenced. And it's one of the podcasts that I, I listened to it for a long time and it, it kind of inspired me to, I talked to Shannon and said, you know, I think we, we should start a podcast because I really enjoy listening to podcasts like this and all of these other fields and there's nothing like that for our field. So what made you start your show? It started with the stained glass class in which the instructor was terrible and a bunch of people nearly got hurt. And then one day he left and I'm like, no, we're doing this right. And I organized a couple of people who knew what they were doing and we kind of held the class for each other. And I, I came home and I said, this was the dumbest thing. Why am I taking community colleges like community college classes with professors who are probably stoned and, and, (laughs) And Chris said, well, how about instead of the next class, we, we do a podcast. And so I said, okay, it'll be interesting. It's something else to learn. That's why I do these things. And we were going to do six. And then we were going to do 12. And here we are um, <laughs> approaching 170-something. And it hasn't gotten old. I still get to talk to interesting people. I get to ask them impertinent questions. And I get to be excited about their field and mine. And it's kept me a lot more enthusiastic about what I'm working on. And occasionally insightful when I realize, oh, this person is talking about a problem I'm having right now and I should fix it. I shouldn't just let it slide because that's another way to get to burnout. Hmm. Nice. That's, we should definitely take that to heart, John. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, so you've been, like I said, you're 170 something. You've been doing this for quite a while and you have a guest almost every week. It seems like that's, that's gotta be pretty difficult to line up. We don't have guests all that often. <laughs> <laughs> We're not that organized. <laughs> we, so on our calendar, we are supposed to have a non-guest show every month, but then I usually give it away to a guest if I find one who's interesting. And it used to be I would just talk all of my friends into doing it. And now I seem to have a bigger group. 
that's been one of the advantages to having a podcast is you do start meeting more people. As somebody who doesn't particularly care to tra- travel and who doesn't really like to meet people, podcast is great for that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, John's often lamented that most of his friends he's never actually met before, so I guess. <laughs> it's true, you know, forums and podcast world and Twitter, that's pretty much how we interact. Uh, <laughs> um, those sound like a lot of similar reasons as to why, you know, John and I, especially the whole keeping excited about your field thing. Um, decided to start this podcast. Um, we've had a couple of guests on who have written books, but I think we're both really interested in what that was like for you. Like, as an author, what was that process like? It's an interesting question. Uh, so I wrote Making Embedded Systems for O'Reilly. And then I started writing a book for a different publisher about a year ago. And the processes were so different that I'm afraid no matter what I tell you, it isn't going to apply. I will say actually that there is a third book that came out before my uh, technical book. And it it wasn't great. It got four stars on Amazon from my mom. (laughs) (laughs) There's still four stars. (laughs) but it was a NaNoWriMo book. And I know we're just finishing November, so it's a terrible to find, terrible time to find out about NaNoWriMo. But that's National Novel Writing Month. There's this whole infrastructure around writing about 2,000 words a day, every day. Don't edit, just write. And getting used to putting words on paper, getting used to thinking a little bit ahead, but not getting so far lost in the details you can't get anything done today. And that process was probably the most useful. Like I said, my book was not good, but I knew at the end that I could write 50,000 words. It was no longer intimidating. And as I, I run a blog now, this goes along with the podcast, and I'm, I'm looking at my co-contributors and they keep saying, well, you know, this is a lot of work. I'm not getting as much done. I'm not posting as much as I want to. And I'm like, you know, you've almost written a book this year. Because if you write 2,000 words a week for a whole year, you really get a lot done. It's amazing. And so between NaNoWriMo and this idea that it was possible, after that, you know, the technical part, getting it accepted by O'Reilly was really cool. But it wasn't impossible. It was, let's make an outline okay, now O'Reilly works this way with editors, other No Starch works this way with editors, and it's very different. That part I don't know if I can tell you anything useful about. Hmm. Was it painful? Oh, God, I hated the book so much by the end of it. (laughs) (laughs) And for every paper we've written by the end. I know. You're so sad. I really wanted to hear that. No, I love this. <laughs> and for years, I said there would never be a second book. So when I started to write a second ah! book, I was like, I know this is dumb. But I was so excited about it. And it has kind of fallen by the wayside because the editing process didn't work out this time. I was, you know, there are some people you connect with and you really have to connect with your editor. <laughs> or it really doesn't work. Um, but... Yeah, you should try it. 
I mean, not that you should absolutely go out and write a book, but if you can maintain a blog for a year or a podcast for a year, which I believe you two are well in excess of, then you can probably write a book. Now, if you can write a good book, you also have to be enough of a team player to find an editor you can work with. Wow. This is really inspiring. (laughs) I've always, I mean, they tell us this all the time in academia, you know, especially people who have writer's block, probably a little bit like myself, just the writing every day, no matter what it is, is so important. So that's interesting to hear from sort of a different aspect, but the same, you know, the same advice. It's about having your butt in the chair. Yep. (laughs) So on writing the book, what... What inspired you to write it? Because it's it was a lot of work, like you said, to put this book together. And I've read it cover to cover and need to go through it again. There's so much good stuff in there. And it's such a great resource. But what made you put all this together in the first place? I had a friend. We were talking. He was setting up a library for his junior engineers. And we were talking about books we thought should be in the library. And bemoaning the fact that there was no design patterns for embedded systems, nothing that would combine both the electrical side and the computer science side into something that a new college grad could pick up and say, oh, this is the half I didn't learn. Because with embedded systems, because it's such a combination of hardware and software, if you get a degree in in electrical engineering or a degree in, in CS, you don't have the other side. It's There's half of your job that you just don't know how to do. And I wanted something that would bridge that gap. And so we were looking for that book and and Jerry turned to me and said, you should just write it. And I had left a job that I didn't like, but I hadn't started a new one. And so I, I thought, okay, fine. I'll, I'll try this whole O'Reilly. I'll write an outline. They'll say, no, it'll be fine. <laughs> and that didn't happen. <laughs> And then, weirdly enough, I had some horrific personal trauma that involved hospitals and ICUs and horrible things. And and then I didn't want to leave the house for about six months because for a while I couldn't, but after that I just didn't want to. And for some reason that helped a lot with getting pages written. <laughs> I don't recommend it as a writing formula, though. Uh, it's much better to just force yourself to do it than to have the outside world conspire. Um, So I have to ask, because you have an O'Reilly book, um, what is your animal on here, on your book? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he's adorable, but... (laughs) A great-eared night jar. (laughs) Oh, these are like these little frog birds, right? Their little mouths look like frog mouths when they're opening up and they're little babies. I get so stuck. Maybe most people don't know this. I I, I didn't. uh, I get so stuck on the ear tufts and how he looks so serious there and just really, really going to instruct you with wisdom. And then he has these ridiculous ear tufts, which I I guess fit the book pretty well. I mean, there's a combination of jokes and and information. (laughs) I mean, we mentioned the Triceratops data sheet. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is true. But so did you, well, we talked to uh, another O'Reilly author way, way back uh, that wrote a book for a pretty similar reason. They said, I want my students to be able to have this book and go, you know, if it's not in the index then come to my office and talk to me kind of thing. 
And they didn't get to pick their animal, did you? No. I did. I did. There was another embedded book where there were like mites, dust mites on the cover. So I did send in a list of animals I wanted, none of which were chosen. And I wanted a dinosaur, really. Uh, they said, no, only living animals. And, uh, and then I sent in a list of things that I desperately didn't want. And so we ended up on neither one of those lists, and that's okay. Right. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> I love it. That's like the one thing O'Reilly has. They're like, nope, you want to write one of our books? You're going to get stuck with this tufted jar bird. <laughs> and you say, yes, thank you. Exactly. <laughs> oh, excellent. <laughs> well, so other than going through your your book, which I think is an excellent place for people to learn a lot of really good stuff from, how do you think people could get started in embedded i mean we talked about well maybe an arduino if you want to learn how to flashlight or something like that but they they need a project well i want to ask first can you define embedded maybe for people who don't know i'm not me of course i mean <laughs> other people <laughs> uh well embedded software that's the easy one that i i do define a lot it is software for things that aren't computers okay uh so so getting started, that is tough because you do need a project. But I assume that many of your listeners are, I don't know, geology-related people. There's lots of you. We yep. don't assume anything about them. but <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say quite a few of them are at least interested in earth science in some way, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, you can get a geophone and put it in your backyard. I mean... You can do that and hook it up to your home Wi-Fi. You can have your own geophone. You want to know if there's an earthquake nearby? You can check your own sensor. Forget all of the, like, I don't know, government sensors. You can have your own. <laughs> uh, you could build a weather station that did exactly what you wanted. You could measure the temperature and humidity of your basement or of your, your dig site. And you could monitor that very, you know, how, how do the rocks change over 24 hours? That's kind of, I mean, rocks don't change that fast. But if you could put something there that sat with the rock for two years, 10 years even, and it worked that whole time, that's some cool data. And that sort of data is becoming a lot more accessible. You can get it. You can build it. Whether or not you can make it last 10 years, I bet you're going to have to visit it a few times. But right. you definitely can create that. Hmm, so okay. Now, that's really interesting because I asked John this a lot because, I mean, obviously I'm interested in computers or this podcast wouldn't have gone on for as long as it has. But I'm also inept at them. And that's one of those things. I'm always like, well, where do I start? Where do I start? And everyone always says you have to have a problem. But, I mean, these aren't even problems. It's just something that's interesting and you can use that to attack it. You know, you don't have to have a data crunching issue or something like that. Um, like John made me buy this rain gauge and <laughs> I don't need it. It's not a problem. I already have a rain gauge or two, obviously, <laughs> but you know, it's just something that you find interesting. So that's kind of, that's kind of cool to hear too, because I think a lot of people are stuck there, you know? Oh yeah. Don't, don't take the whole problem thing to heart. 
think of it as a, a problem of interest instead of a, an actual difficulty. Yeah. I mean, you have a, a, a son, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine making a nightlight for him that is what you want a nightlight to be for him? With lasers, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with lasers, with colors, with with your voice singing, with whatever you want. Or, even better, you can build it with him. Yeah, that's kind of cool. And you don't, you don't need a problem, really. You just need something. The reason you need a problem or you need something that is interesting to you, truly interesting, is because at some point you're going to have to push through a barrier. And if you don't have a reason to get through the barrier, you don't have the reason to get from Arduino to embed or to learn how a compiler downloads things, annoying crap you don't care about, you you have to get something that pushes you beyond that. And so that's why you need a problem. Not because it's necessarily hard, but you need an impetus. This is why I can't run more than five miles, too, because why would I want to? <laughs> if they're chasing you for that long, the bear's just going to eat you. Exactly. <laughs> I just tripped the person next to me. I don't know how to deal with bears. <laughs> five miles is more than most people. I'm sure John will, you know, eat bear food. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've actually probably pushed John in front of something I thought was a bear in the field before. So. <laughs> that, that maybe definitely happened in Colorado. Yeah, it is actually true. <laughs> I mean, you know. The, the was, bear bells was, and the bear spray aren't just jokes we talk about on here. They're, yep. they're very serious to Shannon. <laughs> okay, so bear bells. I, I found out, <laughs> I, I did find out through one of my work trips that snake bite kits don't really do as much as you expect. Uh, but do bear bells work? <laughs> Make it easier well, to I'm find gonna... you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's how you can tell the difference between brown bear scat and grizzly scat is, or uh, black bear scat and grizzly scat is black bear scat has berries and, you know, twigs in it and grizzly bear scat has bells in it. So <laughs> that's what I've been told. These aren't the tinkling bells that I have in picture. Oh, in no, they are because they eat because they eat the hikers. <laughs> 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 so, you know. I'm glad I asked. I did not. Connect that. I, I thought you were wearing bells to scare the bears away, or, or oh something. no, that that is that is what it is, and supposedly that's true. But I mean, really, there have been some people who have suggested that it's really just announcing you to the bears. So Snacks. I don't know. I've got a annoying kid that's really loud by himself, so the bear, bell just adds an extra impetus for the bear <laughs> to stay away. That's that's how I viewed it. <laughs> I could see how it'd be like the ice cream truck song to bears. Uh, That's why we only have a few certain students in class carry bells. I'm just saying. (laughs) I think the only thing that, when we were doing most of our field work, the main thing that we carried were those like mini fire extinguisher sized bear spray cans on the side of your bag. Yeah, those are, those are really what you need, not bear bells. The bear spray is where the action is for sure. I don't want to get that close to the bear. Can I have a longer (laughs) version of bear spray? (laughs) No, they spray like 15 feet. It is impressive. (laughs) No, bears are big. 15 feet isn't enough. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've had um, some people like 
I guess some people have actually sprayed bear spray. They think it's a deterrent, so they've sprayed it on their tents and stuff like that. And <laughs> if you do that, like, it just becomes Tabasco sauce. <laughs> it's not, not the way it works. <laughs> so, yeah, a little bit of education has to go into that. <laughs> but, hey, if you want to know what's in bear spray, you could totally get an Arduino and, like, 40 bucks of sensors off of SparkFun. Make your own little gas analysis system and then make your own bear spray that's much safer than just tasting it (laughs) (laughs) well i think you know thinking of projects or little things like that that you want to do and to me going to like spark fun or adafruit or any of these sites and just scrolling through the list of sensors and new products there's all kinds of like, oh, you know, maybe I could use this for that. And then you end up having a shopping cart and then you end up getting packages in the mail. At least that's how it works for me. I, I actually did that pretty recently. Um, and I, there were a whole bunch of gas sensors that were new to me. And there was one that was all voice recognition. That basically, you could attach it to uh, something else and you would be able to control it, you know, stop, turn. It was for robot Voice con- voice recognition, voice control, but you could add stuff too. I was really fascinated, and there was another sensor that could detect color and motion near it. So the idea, I guess, was that you turn yourself into a light and then dance in front of it. I, I wasn't really clear on what the application of that sensor was, but it sounded really cool. Hmm. So yeah, I, I think looking at the sensors is a great way of figuring out. Oh, if I could measure that, I could monitor it. And if I could monitor it, I could do something about it. So piggybacking off of that, I was interested to hear, I even made a note here, that you were a PC person because I feel like I'm so often led to believe, mostly by John, I'm sure, that you have to use Macs to do any kind of meaningful programming. John... <laughs> I, I, I think that's a misrepresentation, but <laughs> no, and I, I think for the a lot of the embedded stuff, I end up having to run a Windows VM. Exactly. A yeah. Lot of, don't talk about it. <laughs> a lot of embedded software, a lot of the compilers um, are straight out of 1998, and that wow. was that was Windows era. Uh, if you want to do iPhone development, then you definitely need a, a Mac. But other than that, for most embedded systems, you do need to run Windows of some flavor. There, That's expanding. There are a few more compilers that support Mac OS and a few more that support Linux. But um, yeah, I run Windows because that's where my compilers are. I, I have run, I've run different Unixes. I've, I've run Mac OS in the past, but... I hate running VMs. They just always feel slow and broken to me. Chris swears that that's not true anymore, but then I I go and run one and then he breaks and then he says, how did you do that? (laughs) Well, but do you miss the the power of having like a bash shell right there? Or is that something that you just did never find that you really needed for doing embedded work? Um, I I have Sigwin. Which okay. is sort of like having a bash shell in the same way that low alcohol beer is the same as whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> uh. That's my big hang up on leaving 
Mac because with some of the new hardware and all this that's come out, it, it's a lot less attractive, I think. But, well, and it's <laughs> cost prohibitive. <laughs> yes, let's talk <laughs> yeah. about those new Macs because I have a MacBook Pro that I run Windows on. And I was so looking forward to the next one because I have beat the crap out of this one and it still works. And I wanted a new one and then Apple does that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was it was bad, and it's one of those things where I'm I might play with trying to live with the surface for a little while and <laughs> see what things I really miss and if there's a good alternative because that's that's awful expensive <laughs> for just being able to have that that bash shell that I would want. Well, and it wasn't too long ago you had a guest on who talked about programmers making fun of Excel, and I I, I listened to that. And every once in a while, I listen to a podcast and I'll just want to jump into the podcast and talk right then. And that was one of them. I was like, no, Excel is amazing. Excel is very useful. I have written my, my VB scripts. I have done my time there. I still use Excel. I don't use it for a lot of programming anymore, but that's because I make devices. And so anybody out there who's using Excel and getting pressure to move away from it, the pressure is probably worth thinking about, but it's not worth reacting to. Oh. Are those fighting like words? That, Sean. <laughs> oh, those are. Not for me. I mean, I don't, I excel all the way, but that's interesting. I mean, Python mostly, is amazing and it's so much more useful than Excel if you know what you're doing. But that barrier, it's not small. That if you know what you're doing, it's a chasm or chasm. I don't know. One of the two. <laughs> nope, you're right person. <laughs> no, it, it is it is a big jump. I guess the, the big problem that I end up having most of the time with it is we have people that are doing geophysics that have massive data sets that it's it's just the wrong hammer for what they're trying to do. When you've got sixteen columns with four or five hundred thousand rows and you're trying to make a graph of it or do some kind of numerical uh, differentiation integration on it. It's just not not really the right tool to do it. But for some jobs, I think Excel's a perfectly fine tool. So I think it really depends on what, what kind of nail you're trying to hit. And uh, Plus, I have this cool macro where I can play Pac-Man in Excel. So that's really <laughs> what's important to me. <laughs> you're right, John. You... you can't use Excel forever. If as your data sets get bigger, it's not a good path forever. And so you do have to ask yourself, is it a good path for now, knowing that you can't get all the way to the end? Right. Okay. So we've been asking you for, you know, the last 40 minutes or so, all kinds of questions about embedded and electronics and Mac versus PC. But in the notes, you had a few questions about geology. Yes. Yes, I do. Uh, <laughs> in part because of the sand. Um, I had to go out and buy a book to explain some of the geological concepts of my local beaches because it just baffled me so much. We, we, I live in California near the Monterey Bay. And in the, it's normally very sandy at our beach. We have big sand, almost 11 miles of sand uh, from end to end, and then like 200 yards across. But last winter, all the sand disappeared. We had beaches that were all rocks. 
Were the rocks there the whole time and the sand was covering them up? Where did the sand go? How did it come back this summer? And why? Can you explain the sand to me, please? <laughs> um, so I've never been there, but I do teach beach processes. So I guess I should be able to explain some of this. Um, right. So this isn't this winter losing sand is not a phenomenon just to your beach. So don't feel bad about that. Good. Um, I was hoping it wasn't pirates, so good. Yeah, no, no pirates. Uh, I mean, I don't know specifically, but (laughs) um, (laughs) the rocks are probably there already. And so you lose your sand and then you need something to bring the sand back. Like, where does it go? Well, you look down the coast to your neighbor and that's where it goes. Or it's way far out. Okay. So, Shannon, are you thinking like a, a longshore drift type process here? Well, so so now that's sort of the easy answer is longshore drift. So waves come in at an angle and then they go straight back out. And so now you've got, you could draw a little hypotenuse to that triangle. And that sort of gives you the rough estimate of where your sand is getting moved to. Oh. So, yeah, that's one way. Right. And so this is why people put up like spits and all kinds of those big rocky things that go straight out into the into the ocean. It's basically to trap the sand from migrating. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that happens. Um, And then how do you get it back? Big storms. Because a lot of times it just goes offshore. And you get these big bars that get dropped offshore. Right. And that's where you can sometimes see waves that break really far out. They're breaking on these like shoals or sandbars and stuff like that. Um, and then in the summer or whenever your stormy season is, um, you get a big influx of energy in the form of big wave energy. And that big wave energy is enough, um, energy that it can pick up and entrain the sand and then deposit it back on shore. So the little waves steal the sand all the time and the big waves give it back? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) That is exactly true. Mm-hmm. And okay. So there was some discussion in the Slack room, uh, and somebody had pointed out the the I think there were Dolos was the proper name, which I didn't know what it was, what the name oh. for them was, but the, the big kind of concrete uh, barriers that we put out there to actually kind of absorb or redirect some of that energy from the incoming waves. And I think you said they looked like jacks or something like that, which was a great description. Yeah, they look like kids' oh. jacks, except they're giant. And made of concrete. Oh, interesting. I've never heard a name put to that. Hmm. Yeah, I never had either until I think uh, listener Martin in in the Slack room pointed that out and put a Wikipedia link yeah. in. And there was a collective, oh, <laughs> the name. <laughs> Martin is just, Martin is a wealth of knowledge, I'll tell you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's really interesting. Um I, what what did you get to read, Alicia? Did you find stuff that adequately answered your shoreline questions or no? Well, I was in the library and I saw a book called, I think, An Introduction to California Beaches, which since I live in California all my life, I was like, okay, well, maybe it'll tell me about the ones I don't know about since we just moved here. And instead, it was 
from a, a University of California Santa Cruz professor of natural scientists, natural science, and it was how I mean it was an introduction to like the archaeology, the history, the geology, the weather. It was amazing. Um, oh, oh, right, I brought it down. It's by Gary Griggs. Oh, okay. And uh, so I'm still in the large wave weather chapter, which started out with tides and has gone to uh, weather and tsunamis. And But he introduced me to the word littoral. Yes. Right. Yep. Uh-huh. And, and I, so there's that and there were how dunes are made and birchants. That's, I don't, didn't get that right today. Bucants? Barcans. Barcans. Bar- the dunes, <laughs> the, the big dunes, um, and how they're mm-hmm. shaped. I was so amazed by that. Um, it, yes, uh, there's a lot there. I have a really good website, which I'm sure he had a hand in as well. Um, and I do want to slightly correct myself that these high energy times, whether it's winter or summer, wherever you are, that's when you get taken away and it's the baby waves that bring it back. I said that backwards. Okay, Good, because I thought that's what I remembered seeing <laughs> yeah, in the book. Yeah, no, I did say that backwards. So whoever's going to correct me, I caught myself. <laughs> and then the, then the wind pushes it up, so the sand brings it back to like the strand line, and or the waves bring it to the strand line, and then the wind pushes it further up. Right, and so this littoral thing, um, are like areas along the coastline where you basically lose sand, and you lose sand. Like you can pile it up offshore, and then bring it back. Um, either through a big storm can bring lots of sand back to it causes erosion but if it moves it far enough up it sits on dunes and stuff and so now it's on the beach um and then but these littoral areas you can permanently lose them in big submarine canyons which you guys have out there and so once you stick your sand in a big submarine canyon it's not going to come back really so we're just going to keep stealing it from eureka <laughs> yeah basically it's <laughs> a good plan <laughs> Yeah, just look up. Just look up coast. That's that's where you want. <laughs> well, so we did when I took sedimentary petrology, which is the only sedimentology type class that I've taken. <laughs> uh, we did an experiment with a flume. So you had this layer of sand, and then water would flow across it, and you could control. I think you could control the volume of water per time, and you could control uh-huh. the slope. Of this right. tank that contained it all. And you could get all kinds. You could make the dunes migrate one way. You could make them migrate and retrograde. You could get different kind. You could go through these different fluid mechanical regimes of how these yeah. dunes work. And it was really amazing. Anti-dunes, those dunes that move backwards to the direction of flow, which occurs in like really steep or really fast water. It, they're just the coolest things ever. How do you make one of these? The flume or an anti-dune? The, the flume, the, the thing where I could play with it. Um, well, it's, it's basically, I mean, we bought it from a scientific instrument company, but basically all it is is a rectangular, you know, a U-shaped channel out of plexiglass. And there's a tank on one end that holds water, so it's probably like three times the depth of the U-shaped channel. And it holds water and you got all your sand in that U-shaped channel and you just get a pump that pumps water through it. And then a mechanism, which could be anything, ours is just sort of a screw that you turn that raises the um, raises the gradient of the entire flume just on one side. Oh. 
cool. Yeah. I could build that. Sounds like yeah. a good and project like, for like an aquarium pump. and It yeah. does because the pump's fairly simple. We have like basically slow and fast is all we have. I mean, you could get super fancy with it, um, but that's all we do. And it's really neat. Okay. That brings up my next question. What tools do geologists need? And I, of course, care more about the embedded and, and software and data collection tools. But I know that building your own tools is tough. Uh, they often lack ruggedness. That whole 10 years worth of data means you do have to know a little bit about electronics. But how do you, how do you figure out which tools to build? It's, it's almost like an exact question that you already answered which is well it depends on what you want to do <laughs> right like my tools i need a chainsaw <laughs> and uh and a, and a compass <laughs> that's that's what i need to do but if you're doing something especially in geomorphology so we had a geomorphologist on a couple of weeks ago that looks at landscape behavior and so you have all kinds of things that now that maybe 20 years ago we didn't do, we monitor constantly, like creep. So soil moving down the side of any kind of gradient, hill or whatever. And so constant monitoring of those things, and especially, I mean, out where you're from, all kinds of landslide issues has made a huge difference in how we understand the dynamics of landscape evolution. I would think that that is too fast. I mean... Is landscape a geology thing? I thought geologists only cared about things in terms of millions of years. <laughs> oh, no, no, not at all. Um, we have a whole name for those type of geologists, quaternary geologists, and we don't trust them very much. <laughs> but um, <laughs> they're definitely interested on like a smaller time scale. Because you had said earlier, you're like, stuff can't change in a day. Oh, oh, but it can. Volcanoes. <laughs> it can change so quickly. <laughs> um, and I mean, heck, all any igneous person, you know, constant monitoring at all different, and John can speak to this more, um, all different layers of the earth in terms of like looking at a magma chamber. Is stuff bubbling near the surface? Is it a kilometer down and we don't care? I mean, that's still pretty close. You know, is it five kilometers down and we don't care? But the near constant monitoring, I feel like has made, that's where electronics have made such a big difference. Yeah. I mean, the Volcanologists especially, you know, they'll take satellite data, so microwave radar satellites that are sending back these scans, and they'll do interferograms, so they'll make an INSAR image, and they'll be able to track the progress from pass to pass of the satellite of how some kind of volcanic injection dike is moving by looking at the tiny changes in the surface elevation. Uh, so tools like radar, ground-penetrating radar, LIDAR are all big the advances in seismometers yeah are amazing you know we're as seismologists we end up looking at signals that range about nine orders of magnitude in frequency and amplitude so if you look at an earthquake if you're looking at it from very far across the globe and it's a large earthquake you might be looking at signals that are amplitudes of a few nanometers of ground movement and maybe at the normal modes of the Earth, so thousands of seconds. Uh, or if it's an earthquake that's nearby, you're looking at everything up into the tens to hundreds of hertz and amplitudes of ground motion that could be a good chunk of a meter. So you so need multiple trying, sensors, trying... really. Oh, yes, definitely. There's 
you know, broadband sensors and strong motion sensors and some of the sensors for strong motion near events that they're using for aftershock deployments now are MIMS because they're plenty sensitive to be able to do this. (laughs) They're so much more sensitive than geophones, but that's their problem is that they're ridiculously sensitive. Right. But for something like a, you know, a hundred second period wave that's got a very low amplitude, that's hard to detect no matter what you're trying to do it with. And the fact that the instrumentation now is so good is really where a lot of the advances come, I think. But GPS too, there's, you know, now continuous GPS monitoring. We can tell, we can monitor motion of the tectonic plates and actually found a whole new class of earthquakes, the slow earthquake from continuous GPS, uh, which wouldn't have happened that long ago. It's funny. We talked about shot spotter and gunshot location systems. And because of the way we had our sensors, we had a number of, I mean, they all have GPS because you need that for the time for more than anything. But we had little clusters of arrays in like San Francisco and, and Richmond and Oakland. And it was all pretty interesting seismology areas. And if you have a GPS on for long enough, you can see the earth move. And we could see it in our data. And we wanted to write a paper about it so bad, but it was so <laughs> off topic from what we were supposed to be doing. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I will say GPS hasn't changed much for me because all I use, um, I used an ancient GPS and I would just write down the coordinates in my field notebook. Like that's all I used it for. It, it had this ridiculously weird connector and there was no software that would interface with this old monster. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, GPS now has made me lazy, just like regular, you know, the Garmin you can get from wherever, because I know it it stores so much data and it even stores like pictures of my sampling sites. And I feel like it just sits here on my desk full of all that info that I never actually download anymore. What? (laughs) Well, I mean, I have grad students to do that, but, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, I mean, it just, it does so much and I'm scared that I over rely on it. Yeah. This is the time when you start packing two GPSs just in case. Exactly. I think John and I came back from the field once um, together and we were laughing about how if we got lost, we had at least 11 GPS <laughs> 11 location devices between the two of us. <laughs> and well, so. That is a good point, though, that a lot of geologists, you know, I, I am definitely in the vein of if I'm going into the field, I want to take as much check with me as I can. And I want to lay this device down on some surface of a, of a bed and press a button and it takes a strike and dip and records it with a photo and the GPS coordinates and all this. But a lot of what I found from field geologists when I try to talk about, oh, let's make an instrument to do this, is I don't want something with batteries. I want my Brunton yeah. compass in my notebook. It's so true. Um, I teach field geology and yeah, I mean, that's it. We have notebooks, we have these plexiglass map boards and students tape a topo map to them and they use colored pencils or regular pencils and that's it because I have to teach them how to locate themselves on a map because if they're ever out somewhere and they don't have batteries they're not going to understand how that works so pencils are our main thing that we use (laughs) 
technology isn't a solution to everything. And I have been places where another darn gadget that needs batteries is just not worth it. So I do understand that. <laughs> um, this is actually an interesting conversation that I think we should maybe even uh, have you back for, but just something to ponder for when I make you come back on and talk to us because it's been so much fun. Um, <laughs> that whole technology for technology's sake. I feel like in higher education, there's a bunch of that. Like, let's just use this technology because it's here. Maybe it's in K through 12 education too, actually. And that's... That's an interesting question that I struggle with. Well, for K through 12, there's some of that because there are a lot of people who lobby and money and all of that. But one of the advantages to some of the automated learning systems is they have no biases. They don't care if you're a girl and you like math. They don't care if you're a boy and you want to learn how to cook. They'll teach you whatever you want. And for that, I like them very much for learning how to interact with people, how to deal with authority, how to figure out all the little nuances of human communication, not so much, but they do have a place. And one of the reasons I think that they, that we, that people, that everyone who is in tech pushes tech is because it has changed so fast. I mean, the last 20 years, the last 40 years, it's just changed so fast. So it feels a little bit like if you learn tech, as though it's one monolithic thing, which it isn't, but if you (laughs) were to learn tech, then you'll be ahead in the future because clearly that's the direction we're going. And yeah, I don't really believe in tech for tech's sake, but I do find it fascinating. So I'm more likely to play with it. And I would always take a paper map. Yep. Might as well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I think we've we've kept you for quite a while, but we really appreciate you taking the time to join us. It's been an absolute blast talking to you, and I hope yeah. that all of our listeners will go check out your podcast and maybe start a project of their own. I do love what I do, and I enjoy sharing it. So I hope people like our podcast. And I have to admit, I am ridiculously pleased with the idea that you started this one in part because of mine it just is wonderful because this is a great podcast and i'm happy to have been on it well shannon so are you ready to go out and come up with a project and grab an arduino and tackle the world of embedded software development (laughs) you know i will say that intuitively i didn't understand what embedded software was but when she said you know software for not computers it makes so much sense and that's a lot more interesting than software for computers for a non-computer person (laughs) all right well i think it's going to be really cool to see uh what kind of project you come up with and I've got a couple ideas after hearing her talk about inertial measurement units on projects (laughs) that uh, I could maybe incorporate them in and make them a little bit more advanced or user-friendly. Yeah, yeah. This was a very inspiring show on a lot of different levels. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Well, now for something entirely different, as as they would say. Uh, It's time for everyone's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! Yay! I'm shaking it up with a bear bell just for Alicia. (laughs) (laughs) This was a listener-suggested fun paper. This was suggested by Ching Kai, who we read his paper on using 
uh, Android phones to detect and locate earthquakes mm-hmm. as a fun paper a while back. And he wrote it and said, hey, that was my paper. And <laughs> Which was <he's> surprising. Now, <laughs> yeah. And so he's now sent us another paper for us to review called Inferring Passenger Denial Behavior of Taxi Drivers from Large-Scale Taxi Traces by Zhang and Wang. Um, this paper was huge, um, and they use big data, and you can see why. There's a lot of info about taxis that I had never thought of in my life. <laughs> yes, so they pulled data from about 12,000, little over 12,000, taxis mm-hmm. that were equipped with gps tracking devices mm-hmm. so these would log the position of the taxi the direction it was heading whether it was vacant or occupied and whether it had transitioned uh, to being from occupied to vacant or from vacant to occupied and they processed all of this to figure out what happens when taxi drivers turn down paying clients right and i would never have even thought that that was a thing um and they call this this denial ratio, and it says it's actually quite high, uh, over 8%, if not more, um, that high-income taxi drivers deny passengers. Yeah, I was really surprised, because to me, a taxi that's empty makes no money. A taxi that has somebody in it <laughs> makes money. Right. But the data <laughs> don't bear that out. The data say that by rejecting some passengers you're going to make more money, and that could be a problem for companies like Uber and Lyft. Right, exactly. Um, so there's a lot of things that they talk about that I wasn't really aware of anyway, uh, you know, that taxi drivers do this. Um, because I guess that this has been commonly reported in the taxi industry that passengers are refused, refused or denied, and it's under the auspice of you know, their skin color, the fact that they're blind, being a foreigner, or like too close a destination for the taxi to go, or any other of those complaints. But it seems like this analysis might just mean that some taxi drivers are smart enough to sort of realize where they need to go to drop off people to make more money. Yeah, so it's all about making sure that the fare takes you somewhere where you're going to quickly be able to pick up a new fare. And the authors even said that, you know, there are excuses. This was an interview, not in the actual article, but Mm -hmm. that there are all kinds of excuses they've been given. Like, oh, they get in, they tell where they're going, and the driver says, oh, my cab's about out of gas, or I just went off duty. Get out. Uh, (laughs) And that could happen to you, like you said, you know, one out of 12 passengers were denied service from some of the most profitable drivers. Mm-hmm. And so I guess the thinking in the taxi world, um, or at least people that have analyzed taxi data before and not on this big data scale, which is sort of why this paper is unique, is that taxi drivers that make a lot of money obviously pick up clients from the right place was sort of one of the thinkings, right? And also that, um, that preferential pickup increases their income, Right. So say you pick somebody up at the airport where there's this big taxi stand and lots of people that need taxis. If somebody wants you to take them to their house, which is kind of on the outskirts of town, 
you would be further ahead to deny them service and take somebody who wants to go downtown where all the hotels are because you're going to be able to drop them off, turn around, pick somebody up, maybe even at the same hotel, and take them back to the airport where you can get somebody else. Right. And so when you say that, I would think, okay, you don't want to go a long way, even though you'd make more money. You want to go a shorter distance, but that's not it. It's the fact, that second part of what you said, the fact that you can turn around almost immediately and pick someone else up. And I right. haven't and really thought about, you know, the drop-off being the main thing, which is why these taxi drivers, once they hear where you want to go, they deny you. Right. <laughs> and so they divided the taxi drivers into high-income medium high, medium low, and low income. Right. And then they did all this analysis that we won't go into uh, because it was pretty technical and statistical. Uh, But they ended up computing a diversity of pickup and drop-off locations. And the high-income taxi drivers had a much lower diversity of pickup and drop-off locations than any of the other categories. Uh, Like, by far, it's, it's all these intuitive things that, I mean, I'm not a taxi driver, that I would think would make you more money as a taxi driver. That's not true. That's kind of what came out of this for me when I read it, you know? Yeah. And what I also found interesting was the low-income taxi drivers had a low pickup diversity, very mm-hmm. similar to that of the high-income drivers, but they had a drop-off diversity that was much higher, similar to the medium and medium-high and medium-low income drivers, whereas the medium-high and medium-low income drivers had high but similar pickup and drop-off diversities. Right. So it looked like the worst thing you could do was to only pick up people at locations like the airport and only drop them off at locations like their house. <laughs> like their, yes, exactly. And be empty all the rest of the time. Right, exactly. I mean, and the other things were equal for these groups too, basically like working hours and... Things like that. So stuff that you're like, oh, well, maybe the high-income ones just work more. No, nothing like that. Um, It was really based on these drop-off locations. Um, And so they keep referring to, like, the intelligence of the taxi drivers, you know, being able to sort of calculate where they need to drop people off and therefore leading to these. You know, they said that the denial rate might be much higher than this 8%. Um, It was just sort of hard to calculate. Right. And so I do have a gripe with the way some of the things are presented in this paper. Uh-huh. <laughs> it, it is a statistically computed quantity that the denial rate is 8.52%. Mm-hmm. Those last two digits are meaningless. <laughs> the ones place digit is very likely meaningless. We can say it's probably close to 10. Mm-hmm. But with such a small sample size, I think saying anything more than that is kind of giving an impression of false precision. (laughs) Yes. Well, especially they even qualify that in the discussion saying that, ah, this could be much higher. We're not even sure. So, yeah, I thought that was pretty funny, too. (laughs) Yeah, it's a relatively common thing, though, that when people do statistical analyses, they present the exact result to multiple decimal places when... They really don't mean anything out that far. <laughs> um, yes, exactly. There is a, this is, if you're interested in stats, this is sort of a different kind of, it's not like Freakonomics or anything, but it kind of is. It's looking at these things you wouldn't think would correlate to high income that actually do. Um, so that was, that was pretty interesting about the paper as well. 
Yeah, and they did this analysis where they would plot like pickup diversity versus number of pickup grids or drop-off diversity versus number of drop-off grids. And mm-hmm. it was really cool because you saw the different income oh. groups separate into clusters. Uh, by far. And that's where it's obvious that this drop-off is a big deal. I mean, that's, yeah, that's not like fitting a line to a shotgun pattern. <laughs> that's for real that these high incomes um, have that lower drop-off diversity. Right. And apparently this is, I mean, it's a problem everywhere apparently, but especially in Beijing. I have not had the experience of being denied service in a cab in the U.S. Have you? No, not at all. That's what's sort of shocking to me. I will say, you know, I whenever I go to bigger cities, I basically use Uber all the time anyway now. So, but I have never had that either. And I imagine I would be very upset if that happened. Yeah. I- I haven't had the opportunity to use Uber yet, but <gasps> I probably will when I'm in San Francisco this year. Oh, yeah. That's um, when the GSA meeting was in Baltimore. That was my sort of first foray into the Uber world, and I've done it ever since. Every every big city that I go to, it's quite amazing, I will say. Huh. Quite amazing. All right. Yep. Yeah, I'll give it a try and report back in. But we'll yes. link in the paper, which you should be able to get to. Uh, without having to go behind a paywall. Mm -hmm. And we'll also link in the news article from Science that summarizes this paper in about a page. Excellent. Well, that was your Fun Paper Friday. If you have any feedback for us on this show or others, would like to suggest a fun paper, or would just like to drop us a note and say hi, we'd love it. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Well, you can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, coming, hang out with us in our Slack chat room. It's um, hopping a lot lately, so that's cool. Swung.rocks on the Don't Panic channel. And you can also um, check us out on Twitter. John is at Geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin, and together we are at Don't Panic Geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.